The demand for energy is accelerating like never before. New sources are emerging and established ones are evolving. Collectively, all sources will provide the fuel needed to support future global demand. Here on the Energy Scale-Ups podcast, we explore and learn about the people and companies solving today's problems to produce tomorrow's energy needs. Here is your host, Jose Solis. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Halliburton Labs. Halliburton Labs works with early stage companies to help accelerate their growth by providing access to operational expertise, mentorship, as well as financing opportunities as companies prepare to scale. Enter to win their weekly giveaway at halliburtonlabs.com forward slash giveaway. Hi there, everyone. Today's guest is Brett Shell. Brett is the president, CEO, and co-founder of Cold Board Technology and has over 20 years of international business experience in the energy industry. Brett has expertise in oil and gas drilling operations and technology, where he specializes in developing new processes, equipment, and software systems. Utilizing his real-world experiences, Brett has worked towards creating technology solutions that reduce workload, infrastructure, and costs. He has a deep understanding of the startup and scale-up process from both the entrepreneur and the finance perspective, as he's worked with private equity groups, non-institutional, and institutional investors to fund his ventures. He's raised more than $50 million in various energy and aerospace projects, and his current company won first place in the Venture Stream competition hosted by the Haskane School of Business in 2017. So without further ado, let's welcome Brett Shell. Hey, Brett. How are you doing today, man? Good, thanks. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for coming on the show. So I'll just jump right in with one of the first questions I have for you is, what questions should a company ask itself? before accepting outside investment? That's a good, that is a good way to frame that question. <laughs> Here's how I want to answer that. The question is, how, what questions should you ask yourself before you accept funding? I think that when you first start out for most people, unless this is your second, third, fourth, fifth business, right? And you're, you've successfully built and exited, you're not going to know what question you need to ask yourself even. You don't know what you don't know for the most part, Right. That was my experience. So like to answer that question, you almost take in, I think it's a step ahead of where most people would find a relevant answer, right? If you're, if you're listening and you're just starting a business, if I said, here's all the questions I know I would ask to start one now, that's coming from my experience of doing all the wrong things and not knowing exactly what I was doing. So my advice is, and I give this a lot, I get asked this question because I was involved with you know the financing and building up financial narratives and, and talking to the initial investors, bootstrapping, then going to private equity, then going to institutional money, like all the stages, is that some advice that I got from a mentor was, it doesn't matter if you want to start a company that makes wooden spoons or you want to start a competitor to SpaceX. If you don't know how to finance it, you're not going to get anywhere. So the questions that you need to ask yourself can be taught to you. And the most important ones when you're starting these companies, because most people have some industry experience, like they're acoustic scientist, or, you know, I've worked in this industry for 10 years. So I know the subject matter. Like most people that start businesses are subject matter experts already. So don't worry about that. And you're not going to know if you're a subject matter expert, there's very few people that also have finance experience, like have worked in the finance industry for 10 years as well. So my advice would be get some finance advisors or mentors, or before you start your company or even think about it, go work for one for three or four years and raise some money and work in private equity or VC or something. 
the time you spend, the three or four years you spend learning how the financial markets work will probably save you losing the company at some point, being able to fund it in the first place, and or spending 10 or 15 years puttering along because you don't know how to position your company properly or what questions you should be asking to even attract capital. Because my experience is that capital doesn't show up saying, hey, I'd like to put money in. Can you tell me why I should put money in? Right? It's like, you got to go out and do 100 meetings, digging hard, and you got to have answers to all the questions before they ask them for them to have confidence to invest. So that's how I'd answer that. So when you're evaluating, like, let's say you get through that process and you've got maybe an offer on the table and you're evaluating, how do you evaluate that investor? I mean, what do you, are you looking at like, okay, do they have some similar outlook as, as we do or what, you know, what are their core strengths or what do they bring to the table in addition to money or, or things of that nature? Yeah. Yeah. All those things are super important. I guess the amount of evaluations you have the luxury of being able to consider will depend on how many offers or how much leverage you have, right? If it's your only offer, they might not be the best person in the world, or they might not be a strategically valuable person. You might not get along the best, but if it's the only hundred grand you can find, you got to make a decision if you're going to take it. Now, assuming let's say you had five, 10 offers coming in, you got a great product, then definitely then take your time because it's extremely important. The amount of strategic value an investor can bring is oftentimes in my past been more valuable than the cash itself, right? Understood, yeah. Yeah, so taking that time, that comes down to patience and grit from our perspective as entrepreneurs because you're almost inclined to take the first money when you're first starting out. You just get excited and you're like, I need that money, I need to go fast. (laughs) Yeah, that's understandable. Yeah, and it's gonna take twice as long as you think and it's gonna be twice as expensive as you think anyway. So just understand that and slow down and maybe don't take that first money. Maybe go the harder route, maybe support it yourself, maybe run on fumes for another six months, right? And find the right person or group that's gonna do that because they're, if you find the right one, they have all kinds of connections in the space. They have a bunch of experience that you don't and maybe can be supportive in that way. They can connect you with people that are also already more senior in the space, right? And so when they give you 100 grand or 500 grand or 10 million, whatever it is, the ability to execute based on that capital that you've been given will largely depend on your connections and ability to, to get in front of the right people, whether it be for sales or ops or anything else. And a strategic partner can speed that up significantly. That's a great answer. And it sort of also segues into the next question, which would be, what are some of the hurdles that you've encountered when scaling up your businesses? Oh, man. (laughs) (laughs) I hear you breaking out in a cold sweat. (laughs) Oh, dude. Yeah. So I started this company in 2014, like end of 2014, start of 2015. So I started an oil field technology company at the start of the worst five or six years of a triple, rece- <laughs> triple recession, oil war, pandemic, two liberal governments. There's no shortage to every wall that we were dealt. But yeah, so specifically we ran into, you know, a year in, we had bootstrapped a couple million and we had a great product for a drilling tool and 2015 hit and we had spent the first million and a half getting a product to a certain point and it was going great. And then the whole market just disappeared and no one wanted to drill a well. So nobody cared if you had a better tool to do drilling. And that was it. So that was the start. That was the first really hard one where we were basically broke and we had to make a decision as a board to pivot. And I kind of was the big proponent of that. I've been in the drilling industry a long time. I'd seen these cycles before 
And I just knew I'm like, the, the drilling is going to be toast for a while. We need to get over to completions, right? They're, they're still yeah. fracking. They've got a lot of pre-drilled wells. They're going to be fracking if they do anything when it comes back. So we need to move there. And it was an unpopular decision because it, you know, it meant basically throwing out the first 2 million that we had spent and, you know, using various small parts of that technology, but moving completely and starting over and refinancing. So that not an ideal situation to be in, but we did it. We moved, we pivoted, we went, when we pivoted, I went to Vancouver and, and met with a bunch of resource guys because Mm -hmm. that industry was doing well. Right. And so those guys had extra money. And I said, you should be investing in oil field tech right now because oil fields down and tech's going to be what it needs when it comes back. And you you kind of figure out an angle to make that case. And so, yeah, we did it and we raised a couple million there. And then we hit another recession in 2017. And basically we didn't pivot. We just kept going, but we did the same thing. Find the right guys that have the money to come in at the right narrative. It's all about adjusting your narrative, right? There's a, there's a positive angle to most situations, a silver lining, if you find it. And then, and then last year we were scaling and got our company up to a very good growth rate, like doubling our revenue every year. And so we were spending money to meet that, that scale demand and keep up pace. And when you're doing that, you're spending as much as you're making and trying to keep a margin of a certain amount. That's a pretty thin margin because you want to maximize your ability to scale with whatever money you have. And so when you're doing that, the only thing you need not to happen is a massive interruption in your revenue (laughs) because you've committed to spending, right? And then the pandemic hit. So our revenue went to zero in overnight. (laughs) So there's another, there's our third major. So we kind of weathered that storm. We spent, instead of pulling it in and letting everyone go, we made the decision that we had trained too much and spent too much on people. And there's just no way that I, I'm going to bet that this comes back in less than nine months, which is how much money we had at that rate because we were spending a lot of money. And we doubled down on marketing. We doubled down on dev. We doubled down on getting in contact with our clients. And so while everyone was you know, reeling and sleeping and shutting down, we just sent more people into our clients' boardrooms and used that time to accelerate problem solving. And now we're coming out of the backside of it and we've recouped all of our revenue and close to double, you know, doubling it again. And we'll, we'll probably triple it this year. So the gamble paid off. That's awesome, man. Congratulations. You know, I hear, you know, obviously if you, if you spend any amount of time learning about business and scaling business, and then there's some times when people come into a business that is, let's say not doing so well and they turn it around, right. They're doing turnarounds and stuff like that. A lot of times you hear things about, you know, hiring, right. And how important hiring is. And I, I think it's, I think it's a cornerstone to any, solid business. What are the things that you're looking for when you're hiring people, you know, especially in in the scale up phase? Mm -hmm. Great. That's a good question. So one, one mantra I learned from Gary Vee and those guys, first off, so the features I'm looking at for hiring, I'll get into right away. But the first thing that I learned from listening to a bunch of guys like Gary Vaynerchuk and and they talk about scaling their businesses real fast. So you try to learn from them rather than run into your own walls. What they always said was, hire slow and fire fast, Mm -hmm. right? So take your time in making sure you get the right people because people in and out like a revolving door is bad for culture, right? But when you know, when you know you've got someone that's not a great fit, get them out of there, right? Because you're one person that doesn't fit with the culture and the direction of a company you're trying to scale real fast can, it's just like cancer, right? It'll, it'll spread through that company and it'll throw your A guys off 
And if you lose a couple of A guys, they'll, they'll take a couple of them with them. And so that, that's the biggest thing. From a feature perspective, I think all of our guys, we've built a really high performing kind of A player team within Coldboard. Most of my guys work, I don't know, 15 hours a day at least and are excited to do it. And we just have salaries, right? With We have salaries I firmly believe in options and equity. So they got some ownership in the company, but they don't get paid overtime. And so they just do this day in and day out. And, you know, I would like to shout out a few of my guys here. They know who they are. There's weekends they work 20 hours because we're a 24-hour service company, right? And stuff goes wrong. They're up just handling it. And that's literally everyone in our company. And we have 60 people now. So that's a lot of people to find that will put that kind of commitment in, right? And one element is that they have equity for sure. But I think a bigger element is that when we're hiring these people, we hired people for the position they can currently do today. But no matter who that is, if it's our shop guy or if it's a, a guy who washes parts, they have aspirations to do the job of their boss, right? And that's what we want. We want people to have those aspirations. And the way you manage that is we're just very open about it that you're not that guy today. You don't have the skill set to do it. You couldn't do it. That doesn't mean you can't do it. And depending on the position, maybe that's three months, maybe that's a year, maybe it's three years. Maybe you want to be the CTO, right? We'll help you get there by including you in meetings, by taking personal time to sit down and answer your questions for you or train you. But you're going you're gonna to learn how to do that job through experience. And you're only going to get that experience if you stay on a team that most of these people are working 15 hours a day. So you're going to be that guy with the grit that puts the hours in. You know, you're, everyone talks about earning the stripes, right? Yeah. yeah. So when we hire people, that's the biggest thing we look for. Is it's really a mentality to want to join a high-performing team that's kind of a lot of pressure. Regardless of yeah, I mean, there's nowhere to hide, right? A smaller company, you know, underperformers. If you're not if you're not performing to the standard, it's obvious. And then if you're excelling, it's again obvious as well, because you're having an impact on the bottom line of the company directly, right? So exactly, it's good to hear that because that really also segues into another question about leadership, right? Because during the scale up phase, some companies they decide to bring in new leadership from outside. Some of them develop leadership. It sounds like you're more of the point of view of, I want to develop the future leaders of the company. Yeah. I think there's certain positions where when you scale and you scale fast, you need something now. Like I'll give you an example, but for the most part, yes, we like to bring people in. And when you're a small company, you have the luxury of wearing five hats or not. It's kind of a you have the responsibility of wearing five. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But what that responsibility turns into a luxury because that turns into your options. Which hat do you want to pursue when you're only get when we need you to focus on one and we can hire more resources to take the other hats? Right? So the responsibility turns into luxury. And that is exactly what we talked about at the last question. It's like just come in, do the job of five people, which is what you have to do at startups. If you got a little equity, you're gonna have the benefit of doing that extra work. And you're also going to learn the skill sets to do it, right? And if we don't have guys that are girls that are, are doing that, and they're just kind of like in their position and just doing what people ask them to do, that's not good enough here. And, and it's not a pressure tactic, and it's definitely not a bad thing. You know what I mean? It's, it almost some people would seem like, like, whoa, I wouldn't want to work there because that seems like a lot of pressure, which is totally fair. But no one here is like that. And so what happens is that you just, by, by building this structure, 
you end up with a lot of people that want to do that. And so they love it when they're challenged and they love it when they see it, and they get upset if someone's just doing what they're asked, right? Because they're like, well, why am I working 20 hours a day if that person is getting the same, you know, moving up at the same speed or getting the same salary for just doing tasks? And that's what I talk about with the cancer. So, I mean, I think hiring from within is a really great thing because it really it motivates people and it gives them a reason to work harder. And typically... My experience is you get people, especially in a business like ours, like we invented what we do. There were, like our industry is being created from our product. We didn't exist before. And so we don't have the luxury of saying, here's a toaster with a better button. And people have the concept of a toaster, right? So the people we hire have to be very intuitive in being able to understand and convey messages about how to create a new industry. And so that's hard to hire and get someone up to speed real fast. You know what I mean? If they were completely outside and you're like, here, come do this. There's a longer training period to that. Because if you have a toaster, they get the concept. Here's a better button. Okay, I can do that tomorrow. Gotcha, yeah. Right? So yeah, so for our business specifically, because we're creating something, we're basically inventing stuff, it behooves the company to hire from within as well, because they're much more educated on all the facets that they need to understand. Yeah, they understand your toaster. They understand the toaster. Yeah, they understand what what this is that we're selling the new concept. So and then but I'll give an example of the other side of the coin. We need kind of help hiring talent now because we're hiring so many people, kind of like an HR type person. That person doesn't need to be trained from within cold war for a long time. What we need is a really experienced person to pull in the right people to maintain our culture. So that one, we hire a senior person in that position. Yeah, that makes sense because, I mean, they're tackling a set of problems that they could have been tackling somewhere else. Exactly. Yeah. When it's not product or service specific, like uh, controller, right? You you want to hire a top level controller. Gotcha. You don't necessarily want to train someone who's just new to the industry because that will take a long time and it's not specific to Cold War. Understood. So there's there's definitely two situations where you would hire one from outside and then there's another situation where you would prefer to have somebody that you've developed from the inside versus hiring from the outside. I get you. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Here's a question. What were some of the technologies that you guys have started to utilize during the buildup process that you didn't realize were going to be so valuable? Like, let's say, for instance, you guys collected all the data, right? So you guys are doing data storage, you have data storage somewhere, those kind of technologies. I mean, what are you guys, what tools are, are would you guys employ that you feel like, man, I didn't know that we needed this, but now that we have it, we can't live without it. Yeah, I think cloud, we knew that everyone knows how important it is. Everyone's on the cloud, right? So that one's kind of an easy one for storage. The things that we did, it's pretty standard. Like this is going to be a boring answer, but like Monday.com, <laughs> so, Monday.com software was a big one for us and using Lucid Charts. So just little various organizational software. That's not my normal foray. Like I'm kind of an, you know, I'm a classic big picture guy and terrible at details and follow-up and stuff like (laughs) Uh that. Like I really struggle to keep stuff organized when it's really busy. And so I didn't ever put that much importance on those softwares, but those softwares with the right people and to run them has been absolutely critical for our business. Yeah, and that's interesting that you say that because I think there's a lot of 
people and businesses that have been forced to adopt these technologies like Monday.com to keep up with what's happening across the organization when they're not face-to-face every day, right? And that's that's something I think has been super critical since the work from home movement. And I think it's only going to continue to get in, be more and more important as it comes along. But I was just interested to find out for your company in particular, things that you guys have employed that you feel like, oh my gosh, if we wouldn't have had this, then we would definitely be, let's say six months behind or a year behind or whatever it might be. Just like you and everybody else, I think now Zoom has turned into this like, it's obvious that everyone needs to use, you know, teleconferencing or, or whatever it's called, video conferencing now, like Zoom or whatever you use. That's a no-brainer. But the interesting thing to me is the cultural shift that it that it's provided, right? Like we sell a pretty involved service. Like we're going on $20 million pads with people and equipment and integrating, and it's a lot, right? A lot of moving parts. And so typically we would have to fly down to Houston and have a, you know, and we're dealing with the biggest oil companies in the world, Chevron and Oxy and Shell and all them. You got to go down and have a meeting a month for six months with three different teams. And now we're doing, first of all, the volume and the efficiency has gone way up because I can do eight or 10 meetings a day where that meeting in Houston would have taken a flight for a day, a meeting or three meetings a day in Houston, and then a flight home. That's three days. And you get three meetings done, maybe. And so now I'm getting eight a day. But <laughs> what's, what's happening is that the, the Zoom culture has made it so that people are more willing to accept and close a deal over a video conference. Yeah. So yeah, sure. the, effic- the efficiency and scale has gone up. But now everyone will say, yeah, okay, let's try it on a, on a, on a video call, which would never happen a year and a half ago. Now, that's interesting. So... Let me ask you another question that has to do with really something on the lines of like personal preference. But obviously, starting a business is very stressful. Managing a business is very stressful. Scaling up a business is another form of stress or brings on other forms of stress, I'm sure. What do you do to deal with that stress? Like, how do you deal with it? I have two French bulldogs. That's (laughs) the best thing in the world. Swear to God. I don't know if people aren't dog people. If you're going to start a business, become a dog person. That's my first (laughs) advice. And it's the usual boring crap. Everyone knows it and everyone regurgitates it. You go on YouTube and find a thousand videos about it. Everyone talks like they've figured something out that's just like rocket science. But you could say like everyone knows about physical fitness, working out, reading, personal time, all those generic answers. For me, and this wasn't my forte originally, but if you want it to all work and to balance, you got to do all those things. Great. We all know that. Go on YouTube, figure out how to manage yourself. You can watch a thousand videos. It all comes down though to discipline. That's it. One word. You can stop all the crap. If you're not disciplined in everything you do, you're going to be stressed out running a business, right? Whereas if you are disciplined, you go to bed at 10, you get up, you get your little workout in, you feel better already. You got your exercise, you have your coffee, you read for an hour, Whatever you do, listen to piano music and calm your brain down. It doesn't seem like a big thing. You're like, oh no, I'm so busy. I got to get in and just get into this. You take that hour to read or whatever and turn your brain off each morning. And then you get your eight hours of work in or whatever, 10 hours. It's three times as productive. You feel better. Your company moves faster. You deal better with your people. And everyone always tries to nitpick a certain thing. Like I got to make sure I work out every day. And that's the key. No, it's not. 
No, it's not. It's not the going to bed is not the key, right? These are all parts of it, but discipline is the key. Do it consistently. That's all. I've always learned that discipline equals freedom. And people look at discipline as such a negative thing because they have this negative connotation with it. You know, they think discipline, they automatically go to like this negative thought in their head, but it's actually a really positive thought. Like, you know, if, if you practice discipline in your life, you'll realize that you have a lot more freedom later on. That's right. Yeah. That's definitely a key takeaway for sure for this episode is, you know, discipline helps deal with the stress. Does any major like setbacks during the scale up phase that obviously we talked about a lot of the ones like, you know, the, the industry taking a downturn, pandemics, things like that. But, you know, obviously looking at those, you know, having to pivot your business. I mean, how much time does it take to usually work through that problem process? Like, did it take you weeks, months, you know, to figure out what are the next steps? How are we going to get over this hurdle? So there's a couple part answer to that. I think there's a few pieces to that in, in, in navigating those types of situations successfully. The first one is that when you first find out that something macro has changed and you can't do anything about it, and that's it. The most important thing is that you are a person that can internalize that and, and have acceptance quickly, right? And not like get your pity party, have your pity party that, okay, you just, you, all your revenue just went to zero out of the blue not fair, not expected. Right. And you have all those emotions right away. You're like, well, Jesus. And <laughs> okay, great. Do I, I say, take an hour off or two or, or an afternoon, whatever it is, but that's it. Then accept that that is it. Your revenue's gone. So whatever you're doing yesterday is now over. And then the, the faster you do that, then it becomes, how do you eat an elephant problem when it was running smooth? And that's one bite at a time. So you just start compartmentalizing and just start solving small problems. And don't get overwhelmed with the fact that now you have to completely retool your business because it'll crush you, right? If you're like, well, I was somewhere yesterday and now in if I don't completely redo my business in the next six months, I'm dead. If you spend too much time worrying about that, you're not going to get there because you have to start doing small things quickly. And the faster you start doing those small things, and whatever they are, then pat yourself on the back for it and just keep doing it over and over and over and over. And then depending on what it is, it was at least three months after the pandemic of 20 hour days of doing small things. That was a short one. The other two downturns was six or eight months because we had to refinance. And before you can refinance, you have to adjust your company. Before you can adjust your company, you have to figure out what a new financial narrative is and why you're valuable and what your product's going to be, right? Or, or how you're going to adjust it. So that it, it's like eight months of 20 hours a day doing small things. And then you get to try to rebuild what you lost. <laughs> so, and maybe you have to do that three times in five years. <laughs> Who knows? It's not, not everybody starts a drop shipping business in 2017. You know I mean? <laughs> yeah. So is there anything else that you wanted to touch on before we finish up? No, that's it. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me on. No, no worries. I appreciate your time and I'll make sure that people have a little bit about you in the show notes. If you want to learn more about Brett and his company, Coldboard Technologies, be sure to check out the show notes. We'll also have some key takeaways from this discussion. Excellent. Thank you, sir. Thank you so much. Have a good one. 
Join us again next week for another episode of the Energy Scale-Ups podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.